Welcome to the Wellco Supply CAODC podcast for November 2019. I'm John Bako. Thank you for joining us again this month, and we have a chock-a-block show for you. So sit back and grab a coffee, because on the program we have CAODC President and CEO Mark Schultz with us to discuss our 2020 forecast. We have the Crux Analytics Industry Update, as usual. And then we head up to Red Deer to speak with our special guest this month, Nicole Wapple from Rally for Resources, a grassroots advocacy group that has been on the ground supporting Canadian oil and gas since 2016. So it's a really great show. And speaking of great shows, we just wrapped up one of our big events of the year last week, the State of the Industry Luncheon, which is formerly the Associate Member Breakfast, for those who uh, remember that. Uh, it was held at the West End Calgary last week, and judging on the feedback we've received, it was a success. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Premier Jason Kenney and his team for joining us. The Premier uh, delivered an inspiring keynote address, which really had something in it for everyone in the room. He talked at length about the policy changes he's made and is considering, and he and his government are working hard to make the Western Canadian sedimentary basin more competitive, and it's fantastic. So we really thank him for joining us, uh, and perhaps the highlight of his uh, remarks were his closing remarks directed to Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet, which led the crowd to give uh, Mr. Kenny a standing ovation. Uh, another big highlight, of course, was our panel discussion, which was hosted by Mark Schultz, who joins us today. And uh, it was a fantastic panel, wasn't it? Well, first of all, great to be here, John. I uh, want to acknowledge all of the, uh, uh, our listeners here and thank them for uh, supporting our podcast. But you're right, John. I mean, I, the, the, the panel was fantastic. Uh, the premier speech was, uh, was quite uh, uh, was it was quite quite impressive and I think moving for an industry that has been grappling with the last five years of some really difficult times and it was it was uh, it was nice to see um, the premier talk about competitiveness and really getting serious about you know market access and trying to bring our industry back uh, to its rightful place and prominence within uh, the country and and uh, and our economy altogether but you know, we had on the panel Jeff Tonkin, uh, Joseph Schachter, and Daniel uh, Halleck, who I believe was a was a guest on uh, on the podcast That's a few right. months ago, and the did October a October episode. Yeah, and um, and those three gents um, squared off and talked about you know the future of the sector. We talked about natural gas and LNG and the opportunities that lie ahead with respect to you know combating climate change in a very pragmatic way. Uh, and it's not about, you know, the rhetoric of keep it in the ground or, you know, reducing um, our ability to compete internationally at all costs. It was how does Canada play a role in offsetting environmental laggards, um, getting China off coal and, and ultimately providing um, you know, what we would kind of call in the industry ethical order oil or energy. Uh, that doesn't come at such a high environmental and human cost. Um, you know, I, I, you know, before we we carry on, John, I really want to thank our uh, our members for attending. I want to thank our sponsors. Um, you know, we had over four hundred people. One of the best uh, one of the best events we've we've uh, we've had in uh, in a while. And uh, you know, and so you know, the fact that uh, our members came to the table and 
and uh, provided their support, I think went, uh, went go it goes a long way in, in recognizing the association uh, for, for, uh, for what it is and, and the work that it does each and every, uh, each and every day. Yeah, and uh, you know, as mentioned, I think uh, the Premier's speech really had something for everyone in it. Um, can you speak a little bit about the extension of the MOA? Well, I mean, this obviously is great news for our, our service for contractors, and I was, I was glad to see the Premier able to announce this, uh, this important measure when it comes to making transportation regulations as efficient as possible for our service recontractors. And our service recontractors are very unique, have very unique transportation um, needs. Uh, and so should should be regulated differently than you know what you would consider a, a classic commercial vehicle. So some of the measures that the province has agreed to permit service rigs in within our membership to do is um, some modifications with respect to um, uh, transportation equipment inspections. So we've seen an, um, a uh, a, uh, a move from an annual CVIP to a CVIP every five years. And then in addition to that, an exemption from a safety fitness certificate. And what all this means, and the goal that we really wanted to achieve with our service rig members, is we wanted to get our equipment regulated as closely to farm equipment as, as we possibly could. And this, this essentially takes us as close as we can to being regulated like farm equipment. And quite frankly, um, you know, there are a number of reasons why um, it makes sense. You know, first of all, 95% of our operations are in the field. 5% uh, is, uh, is on the public road system. And some of this equipment gets fewer than, you know, 500 kilometers a year. So very minimal exposure on the roadways. Uh, and, um, you know, I would say and I would argue that our industry is just as important as the agriculture industry and therefore... Uh, should have a, a mechanism to be regulated a little bit differently. Yeah, and so, you know, for our members, great news. And I think for the producers in the room, um, they were pleased to hear that uh, the government is considering a bit of a royalty holiday. Can you talk a little bit about the submission made? Yeah, so, I mean, we've been working, I mean, one of the, I mean, our association have, has, have been working incredibly hard on trying to get more rigs out into the field and more service rigs out into the field. And we obviously are looking at a very, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a difficult 2020. And we, one of the things that we were worried about as we were crafting our 2020 forecast is, you know, the, the dreary uh, outlook with respect to the winter drilling season. And the winter drilling season is absolutely critical for our members. In fact, during the winter drilling season, and you know, I would argue on the service rig side as well, uh, more than 50% of our revenue has to come from the winter drilling season. If it doesn't, uh, it makes the remaining months of the year quite difficult to, to manage through. And so what we said to the Alberta government is we said, look, you need to do something to incentivize drilling in the province. Uh, we're under the cloud of curtailment right now, and so we the government has essentially done so far is they've lifted the curtailment policy for new conventional wells and I know the industry is still trying to deal with the definition of curtail or of conventional because 
you know, there are, there are a number of wells, and, and quite frankly, one, one could argue that most of the wells that we drill wouldn't be a conventional wall. In fact, it would be an unconventional wall with respect to uh, potentially some thermal operations, uh, but more importantly, um, long-reach horizontal uh, um, wells that need to be fracked. I mean, one could argue those, those could fall into the, into the bucket of non, not, not, uh, unconventional. Mm -hmm. So we're working on that definition. And the second, the second piece is around, uh, we believe we need to even further incentivize producers to deploy capital. Because what's happening is any dollar that gets put into the Canadian basin, uh, markets are, are severely punishing uh, producers for that. And it's because Canada has a, has a question mark, uh, has a lot of uncertainty, and investors are saying, look, we don't know whether or not this is the area we want to, we want to deploy capital. So what we've said is the government has to go even further and look at ways of, you know, providing a royalty holiday. We've said, you know, if you drill a well from now until the end of June 2020, it should qualify for a royalty holiday. And then in addition, provide some sort of royalty credit um, that would, what we would say, kind of sweeten the deal, so to speak, to get more rigs out into the field. So, I mean, all these things are, 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 um, are up for debate, the discussion within, uh, within the government. The one thing that I think is promising is that this government has, um, has said to us uh, that, they, that all options are on the table and that they're going to take proposals and recommendations like the CODC's royalty holiday for new wells uh, seriously and in consideration in terms of how um, they try to position themselves in addressing um, some of the market challenges in 2020. Okay, fantastic. And we'll get into that forecast a little later on in the program here. Um, so yeah, just a bit, a, a brief bit on the panel before we wrap this section up. Uh, really good conversation. I think perhaps a few people in the room were a bit surprised by Joseph Schachter's outlook for 2020, but it was a nice, uh, I guess, positive view of what could happen. Uh, but you were up there on stage. How did you feel the conversation went? Well, I thought it was it was it was good. I mean, yeah. I mean, with Joseph uh, with Joseph's uh, prediction, I think. I mean, we came out with 20 our 2020 prediction for rig release wells at 4,900. And Joe is coming up on the stage talking about 8,000 wells. And you know what? If Look, if we get 8,000 wells, I mean, this would be, um, I mean, we'll, we'll be living la vida loca, so to speak, <laughs> in the drilling sector. Because that, that, be, that would be wonderful. I just, um, I, I think most people in the room thought he was, he was a bit overly optimistic. But again, um, something to be hopeful for. Because... You know, one of the things in our industry, and I think as, as Joe had articulated, uh, there's a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty, and uncertainty can come in two forms. It can provide you some headwinds and it can provide you some tailwinds. And what he's arguing is that there, you know, the markets are on the supply and demand side, they're tightening. Uh, and what he points out to is that the Americans, uh, he believes the Americans are not going to be able to come to the table to satisfy um, incremental global demand. So, I mean, we're going to be increasing oil demand by about, you know, a million barrels per day uh, in, uh, in, in 2020. And he doesn't believe the Permium and, and some of those um, 
uh, th those those plays that have 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 been given so much optimism and potential, he just doesn't think they're going to be able to make make up that shortfall. And so what happens when you have a tightening of the market? Prices are are provided um, some elevation. And the other piece that he argues is there's been such a lack of investment in our industry in our space over the last five years mm -hmm. uh, that supply is just not going to be able to keep keep up with the pace of demand. So I mean that's great. I mean I think that's promising. I mean I think. Everyone in this industry is all saying that the best thing for low oil price, uh, low oil prices, is a low oil price, right? Because at the end of the day, um, the market has a way of of addressing that, and uh, we have seen a significant pullback in investment over the last five years, which is going to have implications for how we supply a growing energy, uh, the growing energy requirements of the world. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated his uh, historical analysis, and you know he's looking at it from a macro perspective, and he's seen two, I guess, similar cycles in his time as an analyst, and he says that they're very similar to what's happening right now, and that uh, all indications point to uh, higher oil prices, and uh, which means more wells for us, which is fantastic. So, yeah, and, and I think at the, I, I think everyone, I, I, everyone, I think would argue that at some point. We are going to see uh, higher oil prices down the road. I mean, it just it makes sense from the investment side. I think one of the questions that he, that's on the the the, uh, the minds of our of our members is, you know, when is that going to happen? And it's been a long time, John. I mean, as you and I would know, uh, speaking with our members over the last five years, this has been a very difficult time to be in the oil field service industry. Uh, so when are when are we going to see those those uh, commodity prices increase? Uh, that's that's a good question. That's that's the beauty of forecasting. The other thing I wanted to mention, I just want to pick out a um, make a plug here for uh, Brian Krausert, uh, chair of uh, Beaver Drilling. Brian has been uh, has has been helping our association develop our forecast for uh, probably the the last uh, decade and a half. I, I would argue. Um, and has been um, very instrumental in helping us uh, navigate uh, through kind of the methodologies of forecasting. And I, and I would argue the, the CIDC forecast is, is, is always a, is, is a good way of, um, you know, benchmarking, um, you know, your, your own company's uh, revenue projections and, um, and it kind of helps you plan and uh, address you know your your business issues and and operational requirements going forward. So, anyways, just wanted to um, just thank him for all his hard work. He's uh, it's uh, we really really appreciate it. Well, thanks to everyone involved uh, in making that event such a success. Uh, we had a great time. If you are interested in watching uh, Premier Kenny's keynote or the panel discussion, we have both of those available in one uh, video on our Facebook page. So before we get into our industry update and then on to the 2020 forecast, here's a word from our sponsor, Wellcore Supply. 
Weldcore is proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. Weldcore supports ethical oil. Weldcore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. This holiday season, Weldcore is partnering with Children's Wish Foundation and Make-A-Wish for its second annual Welding for Wishes, a fundraiser to help grant wishes to the 6,000 children in Canada facing critical illness and complex medical needs. From November 18 to December 3rd, Weldcore calls on our oil and gas community to help grant a child a wish by going to weldcore.ca and clicking Donate Now. All right, we're back. And if you can, please log on to weldcore.ca and donate to their Welding for Wishes campaign. It's a great cause. Okay, let's get into the Crux Industry Update brought to you by Crux Analytics. The Crux Industry data set provides you with the most accurate and up-to-date drilling information in Western Canada. For more information or to subscribe today, check out cruxanalytics.com. This October, we saw 3,979 operating days compared to 5,801 operating days on the drilling side in 2018. Uh, we had 5,409 in 2017, and uh, from 2019 to 2018, it was a decrease of 31% year over year, and about the same compared to 2019 versus 2017. We averaged 129 rigs drilling during the month of October versus 188 rigs drilling in October of 2018. And I, I specify drilling because for those of you who know, we have, uh, we classify, typically we classify active rigs as drilling and or moving. Um, and so the numbers we're giving you this month, the 129 and the 188 are specifically for drilling. So those numbers were days where rigs were billing drilling rates. So from a jobs perspective, that is uh, a loss of 10,575 jobs year over year from 2018. Uh, Alberta had the most operating days in the month at 2,642, with Saskatchewan coming in at 933, BC 338, Manitoba 81, and Ontario 4. Of all those wells, 28% were deeper than 4,600 meters. Uh, for the record, we're now using 175 direct and indirect jobs per rig as opposed to our old number of 135 to calculate the uh, number of jobs in the month there. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking the rig number, for instance, 129 in October, and then we're multiplying that by 175 to come up with uh, our jobs number. We, as mentioned, used 135 in the past. Um, we decided to increase that just based on the fact that uh, drilling is different now. Um, we have cut down on the amount of days it actually takes to drill a well, but in doing so we've also increased the amount of services involved in drilling a well. So uh, we are still on the conservative side when compared to our peers. Uh, most of our peers will use a higher number than one 75, but uh, we feel 175 is more accurate and, and we chose to raise it this year for our 2020 forecast uh, just to capture uh, some of the new technology and, and more people involved with actually uh, getting the well drilled. On the service side, as of today, November 21, we had 85,619 operating hours reported in October 
down 17,815 from 2018 numbers, or a decline of just under 17% year over year. We averaged 119 hours per working rig for the month, and our working rig fleet number was 476 for a working rig utilization of 46%, up about 2% from 2018. Of those service rigs that reported hours in the month of October, 66% were working in Alberta, 23% in Saskatchewan, 6% in Manitoba, and 3% in BC. We also had two service rigs operational in the Northwest Territories. The Montney continues to remain the most attractive and active basin right now, with uh, the Viking and the Bakken virtually tied for second, and Deep Basin in third place. The busiest operators in October were Crescent Point, Baytex, Torxon, and 7Gen. So there's your monthly analytics summary brought to you by Crux Analytics. The Crux industry data set provides you with the most accurate and up-to-date drilling information in Western Canada. For more information or to subscribe today, check out cruxanalytics.com. So, as mentioned, we released our 2020 drilling forecast last week, and here to give us a run-through is CAODC President and CEO, my boss, Mark Schultz. And uh, by the way, <laughs> uh, sorry I was late this morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the old alarm clock uh, wasn't on, actually, sure, and sure. I, I kind of rolled over and opened my eyes, and it was sunny, and I thought, hmm, <laughs> I think uh, something's wrong here, but anyway... You know, you know I'm good for it's it. It's okay. I'll stay extra. We'll bring it up in your performance of <laughs> All right. So can you give us a walkthrough uh, the forecast and then maybe provide some context given the recent announcements that we just discussed uh, earlier there? Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at our 2020 forecast, I mean, it is, um, it's, it's almost a repeat of what 2019 looked like. So uh, there's a slight increase when it comes to wells i mean you know you're talking about eight wells basically so i mean virtually no change when it comes to overall rig released wells and not uh, not a significant change in operating days you know one of the thing uh so you know so for 2020 we're looking at 46,599 operating days 46,000 so let's compare that to what you know the last good year within this kind of this uh, five-year depression energy depression we were having in the energy sector in Canada back in 2014 we had hundred and thirty one thousand operating days we're projecting forty seven thousand so that is a significant fall uh, from you know periods where we had robust employment we had companies that were profitable, um, and um, you know it's been a long, as I had said, it's been a long haul to get us down to uh, operating around about forty-seven thousand. The other interesting piece is the fleet overall size of the fleet um, is going from about five hundred and forty-five to sub five hundred at the end of twenty twenty. So the rig fleet, and this narrative has, has been taking place for a number of years now. We've already seen uh, announcements from some of our members uh, and some of our member customers who have basically upped uh, and left, uh, moving head offices, taking equipment, taking key personnel, management teams, skilled crewmen, and all of these things are at the 
uh, at the peril, I think I would say, of our own industry. Uh, or and and so I I would argue that we're going to continue to see uh, more rigs leave Canada for destinations like the United States. And John, I mean, it, it you know when you look at the argument and you look at the business case of what the United States is offering uh, our members, drilling contractors and service rig contractors. Um, you know, you cannot fault these companies for making a decision to leave Canada. Day rates are higher. You know, you can operate year round. You're operating in a very different regulatory environment. It, uh, you know, you can get approvals quicker. Um, you get paid in, in uh, US dollars. And you have an administration, both on the state side, particularly in Texas and the premium, you have uh, this a state regulators as well as federal regulators joining together saying we want to see this industry grow where uh, whereas the canadian side is is much more different we certainly have favorable provincial governments and i think i want to applaud the kenny government and um uh, uh, premier moe's uh, government for looking at competitiveness seriously trying to find regulatory efficiencies. The, the, the problem that, or I guess the challenge that these two premiers in these provinces have is that most of the major levers that need to be, um, I guess, turned on, so to speak, uh, are out of their control. It's in the federal government's hands. So, you know, look at things like inter-provincial pipelines. I mean, that is the purview of, and constitutionally, um, the jurisdiction of the federal government. And so when you see things that are introduced like C-69, which in industry more commonly known as the No More Pipelines Act, um, where Chris Bloomer, the president and CEO of the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association, has said no proponent would be interested in putting new, a new pipeline through this application process. And that's not coming from the drillers, that's coming from the pipeline industry. It's, it's just not going to happen under this legislation. Then of course we've got C48, which is the tanker ban. Um, then we have punitive environmental regulations like the carbon tax, where we're constantly um, layering on more and more costs and regulations onto our industry, and it is just killing us. And so this forecast really is the results of a very long narrative for the last five years that has generated um, this poor drilling activity. And, but the, the nice thing is, I mean, the, one of the things I think we can still be optimistic about, and as, as hard as it, as it is to see this bad public policy and investment flee this country, the one thing that can draw some optimism is that although it won't be easy, um, you can bring that investment and that attraction back to Canada. But you need the willpower, you need the leadership, and you need, um, you know, what you would kind of call, you know, put, put, your, put the money where your mouth is. You know, like, it, we need some action, some credible policy. We need a vision. A vision we for need, the country. Yeah, we do. But that's what it'll take. I mean, I, I think we can, we can be eternal optimists with this because we can turn this around. I always use the analogy, somebody asked, well, you know, how long will it take to kind of turn you know, turn this, this, this back to where we had a sensible investment environment. And I say, well, it's kind of like we've been on this freight train moving 
you know, 250 kilometers an hour in the wrong direction, um, you can turn that around. It's just going to take some time. But as you had said, it's about vision. It's about what's the strategy. Uh, unfortunately, today, I think the strategy is uh, there's a lot of ignorance, but I also think there's a lot of willful, um, a, a willful objective to see this industry be reduced from its former glory. And we just, I just, as a Canadian, as an Albertan, as a Western Canadian, I just think that's wrong. And I think we're frittering away a huge opportunity. So again, back to the fundamentals of the forecast, 47,000 operating days, no change virtually from 2019, 4,900 rig released wells, given us av on average 128 active rigs. And as you had pointed out, active rigs would be rigs that are uh, that are drilling. So there, there it is. All right. Well, um, as mentioned, this is subject to uh, change. We are monitoring the landscape with respect to how the uh, curtailment lifting for new production impacts uh, our members, and also keeping uh, our ear to the ground for any type of. Uh, royalty incentive that might come our way. Um, we will update the forecast accordingly if we feel that those uh, impacts will be material. Uh, so thank you very much for that summary. And next up we have our interview with Nicole Wapple from Rally for Resources that was recorded earlier this week at the Predator Drilling Offices in Red Deer. All right, and on to our special guests. As grassroots advocacy campaigns in support of Canadian oil and gas go, few have been more successful over the past several years than Rally for Resources. Since their inception in 2016, Rally for Resources have co-organized and attended over 40 rallies and counter-protests, and have been instrumental in challenging Canada's political leaders at all levels to stand up for Canadian energy and help dispel the misinformation spread by industry opponents. Today on the Weldcore Supply CAODC podcast, we are very pleased to welcome the founder, or one of the founders of Rally for Resources, Nicole Wapple. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So can you give our listeners a quick history of how Rally for Resources began and why you decided to uh, get in the advocacy space? Sure, um, so being an oil and gas family, we were watching the Northern Gateway and Pacific Northwest LNG projects in 2016. Um, we found the contentiousness of the two projects rather bizarre. And the things that we were and still are hearing about the industries um, that we, our family members and friends work in, are, are simply not true. Uh, when the acti activists state incorrect things about our industry, they are actually talking about us and we take it personally. And at the same time, Jeff was working in Fort Nelson and I'd seen some news coverage of truck rallies happening there and in Fort St. John in support of the PNW project. So when Jeff had a down day, he went to their writing letter campaign and found out some more info. Um, he obviously signed a letter of support and brought some home and he actually ended up volunteering for a few hours and getting uh, some contact information for me. From there, I connected with one of the organizers who agreed that we needed to support each other and so together we started the Rally for Resources Facebook page that would be inclusive of all natural resource industries. 
Um, it grew quite quickly and so did our relationships with other advocates we didn't even know existed. We ended up having the very first Albertan pro-oil and gas rally in Edmonton in November of that year where we were lucky enough to have your president Mark Schultz speak. Mm -hmm. And we should introduce um, Jeff. We're talking about uh, Jeff. Sorry, and Jeff's my Jeff? husband. Yes, <laughs> he's yeah. He's worked in the oil and gas industry for about 14 years now. And so, Rally for Resources is yourself, Jeff, and are we missing anybody else? Or uh, no, we've had people kind of come on and then and then leave, you know, time, yep. life, whatever. But yeah, mostly it's just us two right now. Well, speaking of which, uh, you know, you guys are so personally engaged that you're willing to spend your own time and money to fight for this cause. You mentioned that it's your friends and family that these uh, engos or industry opponents are talking about, but uh, what else kind of drives you or, 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 you know, because you're donating a lot of your own time, a lot of your own money for mm -hmm. this cause. Uh, what keeps you so passionate about it, I guess? Uh, we were an oil fam, or we are an oil, oil field family with deep roots. I'm third generation oil patch. Um, I worked in it before having kids, and Jeff has worked in it for the last 14 years, like I just said. We have three kids that are active in extracurriculars and need a home and to be fed and safe. Um, we've made many sacrifices as a family just for Jeff to stay employed over the years. We have felt the pain of the downturn and because of the anti-oil and gas campaign but not nearly as bad as many folks out there, including our own friends and family. We also recognized early on that the powerful activist lobby was uh, forcing decisions at the corporate and government levels, but the first ones to suffer the consequences of those decisions are, of course, working families. We didn't have a voice in those decisions, yet they affected us the most. Um, what we also realized was that no one was going to advocate for us, so I guess we just stepped up to help protect resource jobs and, and all of us and those that uh, work in them. So last year seemed to be kind of a, I don't want to say pivotal, but it, it, we saw a lot of rallies in the summer in Calgary in particular mm -hmm. um, in support of the industry. You guys did a fantastic job, of course, working with uh, Cody Battershill of, of Canada Action, who's yep. been fantastic leader in the space uh, even before the oil respect campaign started in, in 2016 cody was very active in advocacy um and so yeah i mean what we what we saw i think in calgary in this in the summer was you know a long time coming i guess but it wasn't only in calgary uh you guys have uh, been doing this across the country can you give our listeners maybe some of the highlights of all the rallies and events that you've being too or organized in the past 18 to 24 months? Yeah, and it has been that long. It actually started in February of 2018, I think. Um, and the rallies were a real opportunity to get people involved as well as send a real public message that we are here and we are paying attention. Uh, we've taken many of our rallies across the province and country. So like you said, in Alberta alone, we co-organized um, most of the time with Cody. A dozen rallies in Calgary, five in Edmonton, two in Red Deer. Uh, we did one in Fort McMurray, Grand Prairie, Rocky Mountain House, Slave Lake, Lac La Biche, and Drayton Valley. Uh, beyond our province, we have taken a bus to Vancouver and participated in a rally there. Went to Kamloops um, and Kitimat and Terrace, BC, Regina, Winnipeg, Ottawa, and all the way to Halifax. We also uh, 
may have went to the Suzuki Foundation on one occasion with some like-minded friends, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, and recently we've started working across the country with other grassroots organizations that share our values. Well, and that's, I think, fantastic because that's one of the things our opponents do so well, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but uh, what was it like in the interior? Uh, you know, I mean, I think a lot in of Kamloops? people... Yeah, I think a lot of people sort of mischaracterize the entire province of BC as being anti-oil uh, gas, anti-pipeline because yeah. of what we have coming out of uh, Vancouver and Victoria. But, uh, you know, I think the interior is likely a lot different. And we certainly know uh, north uh, eastern BC is, is much different. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very in support of oil and gas. But what was the interior like with those rallies? Uh, Kamloops was probably one of my favorites. Uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline runs right through there. So there's a lot of support there. We had, and this was er very early on, this was May of 2018. Um, we had, I think, eight or nine speakers, um, most of them local. And that was where we actually had one of our, f or our first First Nation speaker. He was from the Simp First Nation. Okay. And they have a lot of contracts with, well, it was Kinder Morgan at the time. Um, at the, you know, maintaining the pump stations and that kind of thing. So it, it was awesome. He did amazing. Um, we had one, two, three opponents kind of yelling from the sidelines. We ended offering them the mic. We ended up offering them the mic, and they they wouldn't take it, but um, they did stay and listen. So it was yeah, it was a good one. I think there was 150 of us. Well, that's. I wonder if uh, we could say the same about some of the pipeline protests. I don't recall. Uh I haven't been to too many, but I don't recall seeing any, anyway, uh, them offering the mic to uh, anyone in support no. of oil and gas to... Uh, <laughs> no, never. So, yeah, no. that's a little bit different. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen a number of groups, especially over the past two or three years, come out and fight in support of oil and gas. Um, but as we all know, we're still, we are still years behind. Um, can you give us a sense of just how extensive the network of NGOs, and that would be our industry opponents, uh, just a, a sense of how extensive that network is, um, you know, and, and they've been fighting against Canada's oil and gas industry for a long time now. Yeah, I think that anyone that has taken the opportunity to dig into things like the 2008 tar sand strategy campaign we'll see that there's a network of professional level anti-development activists deliberately trying to put us out of work. Uh, that campaign listed an initial 19 activist organizations, nine of which were in are in Canada and 10 in the US, all focused on us. And it's not just oil and gas. When you look closely, you can see it was some of the same activists like Sapor Berman that hurt BC forestry um, during the War in the Woods campaign. Well, she's got a long history of uh, doing what she does. So she does, she, yeah. and she's made millions. Um, I think 15 years of activism, and she's made millions doing it. So, yeah, and, and I mean, you, we're even seeing them redirect their efforts to attack farming now. Um, you know, sam uh, fish farming, that kind of thing off the coast of BC. So they are they they are sophisticated, and they are, they are organized and funded, yeah. well-funded. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, aquaculture, because I when I was uh, in school, I did a co-op in uh, Courtney and uh, worked for the Ministry of Agriculture and Lands and mm -hmm. we were consulting. Uh, they had a dedicated First Nations, uh, First Nations liaison officer there and I was working uh, for him and uh, we were consulting on all the aquaculture leases and I recall uh, a person by the name of An Angela Morton, I believe, 
Andrea Morton or Angela Morton, who was uh, yeah, heavily against aquaculture and uh, you know similar types. And that was of, how many uh, years ago? Oh, that was in 2006. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, no, this is uh, for sure. These battles have been going on for a long time. Um, yeah, and I mean our opponents are they're very sophisticated. And when I'm talking to people who don't understand the space, it's sometimes hard to describe just how developed the uh, tactics of these NGOs are. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the key tactics and tools they use to operate? Uh, a lot. They have a lot. Um, they, they do their information gathering through online platforms. So every time someone clicks on a link from social media or their website and offers their email address, they're collecting that data which is very powerful for garnering support for policy pushes um, in between elections and then at election time. You know, that's how they're getting out the vote. Um, they also send professional protesters to events with key messages posing as locals. In Houston, BC, for instance, um, with the Coastal Gas Link, there's a YouTube video out there of professional activists from Europe, Russia, and the US training Canadians at, at the blockade on how to deal with police and industry workers trying to do their jobs. So uh, they also hold town halls, which we just saw with the Green New Deal. They door knock, and not just during an election campaign, all of the time. They do mail-outs through Canada Post and other third-party delivery services, which is extremely expensive, and they organize, again, their very professional protests. Uh, we saw the stunts. We always see the stunts. They the Greenpeace activists hanging from the bridge in Vancouver, for mm -hmm. one, um, which elicits national and sometimes international headlines. And if they're getting them and we're not, they're winning because they reach Canadian living rooms. Um, they also have an international network of celebrities and political operatives. Here in Canada, they've infiltrated every level of government, especially in BC at the municipal and provincial level. They commission reports to suit their negative narrative and then release them with full communication strategies so they reach masses of people. We've seen programs recently like the Pact for, for a Green New Deal and the 3% Project and they do cross Canada tours getting to schools and universities. The organizers of the NGOs are professional level with full-time paid staff working every day to put us out of work. Um, one example I just saw was Stand.Earth. Um, they have job advertisements on their website right now and they pay well. Uh, Is that right, eh? Oh yeah, uh, you can find them. Go on to Lead Now, go on to Stand.Earth, Greenpeace, and, and they're always hiring. Um, Stand.Earth is, is an international, um, started yeah. in the States, but they've got people everywhere. Yeah. So they're paying uh, eighty-five dollars to $95,000 a year. I've got a list here wow. of t for a global climate campaign director. For a Canadian climate campaigner, it's sixty to seventy thousand. Senior international Amazon campaigner, seventy-five to eighty-five thousand. Canadian communications manager, seventy-five to eighty-five thousand. Canadian communications specialist, sixty-four to sixty-nine thousand. These are well-paid positions. Holy smokes! They are, and so many of us would love yeah. that right now, yeah. right here. That's for sure. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's you mentioned the professional protesters and. Uh, we were in Kenora, Ontario with Oil Respect. This is a couple of years back now. And uh, one of the people who attended our event was telling us about a, they had, TransCanada had hosted an information session in town right. about the Energy East Pipeline. Yeah. And so 
at the session, apparently, five or six protesters were there. Um, the local media came down, covered it, and the protesters were delivering their lines. We don't want these pipelines in our community. They're, uh, we're putting our families at risk, et cetera, Scripted. et cetera. Yeah. And then after the event, uh, this fellow was telling us, he watched the protesters leave. They hopped into their cars with uh, North Dakota license plates. Oh, wow. And left town. So, you know, they're obviously sent by some organization to get in there, get in front of yeah. the cameras. They're all very prepared. And they're posing as locals. Yeah. And so, you know, all of this and hits the 6 o'clock <laughs> news and, and uh, everyone sees that these local people from Kenora, Ontario don't want energy east and they're not even, <laughs> you know, yeah. people are at home uh, watching TV going, I've never seen that. I mean, these are small communities, right? They're yeah. probably saying, I've never seen that person before. Yeah. I wonder what, uh, how he got on TV. So, yeah, it's, it's funny because when you talk, you tell people these stories and they don't, they don't know the scope of what's going on. I think there's some disbelief. I really do. Oh yeah, but it's hard to believe. Yeah, it's it's something um, Hollywood would you know it's it's a it's a movie. It's, it's it seems fictional. But anyone, like you say, and I would encourage our listeners to get online and check that out. I mean, that mm-hmm. information, those job postings you just shared with us. Yeah, it's on their website. They don't hide it. It's funny that you um, the the U.S. protesters when we were in Vancouver. It was one of our first ones when we took the, the bus out there, but the reason we went is because they were also holding a big march against Trans Mountain, and they were very public about the buses that were coming up from Washington and uh, Oregon, I guess. So they had about three or 4,000 people out, and I have no idea how many were American, but I think a very good portion of, that, of their protests that day were American. Wow. Yeah. Incredible, and that's not what you see in the news, you know? Yeah. Huh. Well, they have many tactics, we know, and we're learning from them. I think all of our, oh, yeah. you know, the advocates for our industry, and we have to. I mean, they do a good job. Our opponents do a oh, great yeah. job of, of, uh, of uh, getting their message out there, and we need to do the same. So in terms of tactics, another one they've been using for a long time now is fear-mongering, and especially with kids. Um, you know, I've got a note here about a, a John Stossel segment that I... I remember seeing just after uh, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth came out, Mm -hmm. and he was interviewing a bunch of children, I'm going to say maybe grades four to to grade seven, and uh, they were scared. Right. They were just terrified of of what was going to happen to the planet. Of course, this is what I'm going to... I think Inconvenient Truth came out 2005-ish. I remember seeing it. Back then, I don't know if that's the exact release date, but around then, so, you know, mm-hmm. 13, 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, we're still here. The planet's still here. Yeah. We're still doing all right. I, I actually didn't see the, the documentary, oh, so, okay. but, but I remember it. Oh, sure. Through. I mean, yeah. if you were to watch it, uh, they had the polar bear floating on the, the last piece of ice in, in oh. the ocean, <laughs> and, uh, you know, these children were, were crying, and they were extremely, upset. extremely upset. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not great. No. And there's, there's a reason that the tar sand strategy campaign um, specifically outlines their initiative to quote-unquote raise the negatives because negatives and fear work on people, especially kids. Uh, it's human nature and, I, and almost a natural defense mechanism, I think, to remember the negative so as to not to make sure that it doesn't happen again. It's actually a brilliant marketing strategy. Yeah. No, for sure. 
Well, I know you and Jeff are fantastic about getting out and showing up at some of these, uh, some of the town halls that our opponents put on, mm-hmm. and learning about some of the information that they're they're sharing with people. I know recently you went to uh, one that was put on by Gordon Laxer. Can you can you give our audience a sense of uh, what was happening at that presentation? Yeah. So Gordon Laxer. Um, we showed up to ask him some tough questions. And sorry, just to cut, don't mean to cut you off there, to give our audience a bit of a background. I don't know much about Gordon Lax, but he's written a book called After the Sands. Yeah. I believe he is a professor at the University of Alberta. I'm not too sure in which department, but... I don't uh, think he is now. Well, he's I think anymore. it sounded like he, was, he lives in Ontario now. Oh, okay. So he is one of the founding directors of the Parkland Institute out of the U of A. Um, and like you said, he's the author of the book After the Sands. Uh, and his presentation was uh, supposed to be about how the Green New Deal is the answer. And, and I would encourage all of your listeners to familiarize themselves with the Green New Deal. Just go on their website and give it a quick read. That's who's lobbying our government and our incoming federal government right now. Um, but, you know, he's, so he's pushing this, this agenda and saying that the Green New Deal is the answer for Canada and the world. Uh, but you know let's be clear these kinds of people are not used to being questioned on anything so when we do it it makes them nervous which is why we went (laughs) um it couldn't answer he couldn't answer many of the questions that we asked um and you know we can't ask hard questions without being confrontational he used uh very convenient statistics on emissions like per capita um you know, p- pinned the country's emission fails on uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan multiple times and actually answered with, I don't know, on multiple questions, okay. even, even the friendlier questions to him, um, and asked for suggestions from the audience members. So when we, when we show up to these things and ask the hard questions and they can't answer them, the audience is hopefully, you know, thinking twice about the message that, that these guys peddle. Um, this is kind of why we should all start stepping outside of our comfort zones and, and inconvenience ourselves a little bit here and there to attend these things. Yeah, I think that's, and you guys have been um, really encouraging people who support our industry to do that, and I think that's such a great message. It doesn't take much to, and even if you don't say anything, even if you don't, um, I guess, if you're not somebody who's confrontational, that's fine, but at least familiarize yourself with some of the things that uh, they're saying because you know and I bet you a lot of times even though you don't think you're going to say anything when you see some of the statistics pop up that they use and you know the answers oh yeah you know know the truth about it you might be just inclined to put your hand up and say "Uh, excuse me actually I you know either work in the industry or I actually know that what you're saying is wrong and and here's why so that's exactly right you know the more people we have there who actually know what's going on the better for sure so I really think you guys are doing a great job of sharing that message yeah yeah for sure so his was uh, was it well attended no there was I think Jeff counted 58 people and we ended up having um, at least eight of us come out from from our side I guess he had he was supposed to have 30 minutes um, for questions and they cut it off after 15 because he had three friendly questions, um, three from us, and then there were three more in line on our side to ask questions, which they didn't get around to. So, I mean, to me, that's a win. You know, they, they were uncomfortable. They, they, didn't, they, didn't question, they didn't 
go the full time that they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's success. And that was where? He was here? He was here in Red Deer, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, and that, I mean, I guess good for them for coming into Red Deer and, and you know, holding something like that where they're pretty sure they know they're not going to get a ton of support. But uh, it's great that uh, there are lots of advocates on, on our behalf there to, yeah. uh, to help balance the conversation. Um, another one that's quite troubling, and I don't know if uh, our listeners will be familiar with them, but it's that 3% uh, campaign, and, and uh, they're targeting a younger audience. Can you give us a little background on what, on what they're doing or what you know of uh, their campaign? Yeah, so the 3% Project is um, an organization that has been operating for about three or four years now. Um, they are going, they've done four tours across Canada and the 3% is them reaching so that so they visit schools and do presentations on climate change and how oil and gas and fossil fuels are bad and need to stay in the ground um, their 3% they're trying to, to accomplish is 3% of the population meaning 1 million students so so as of now they've done four tours and they're starting the fifth tour in January they always start those on the west coast in BC and then head east. Uh, in Alberta alone, they'll be here f- for the whole month of February. Um, and they have info on their website and in their handbook that is completely false and misleading, yet <laughs> educators aren't fact-checking them, obviously. Yeah. Uh, they don't make their actual presentation public, but we did find a quick tidbit on Twitter about forestry that will kind of set the stage, that sets the stage for their entire show. Uh, So this tweet was from a, and I'll read it out loud here, this tweet was from a student in real time during one of their presentations. And she said that a huge, huge thank you to At 3% for allowing Steve Lee to come in and teach us about Canadians' impact on climate change. Canada is the number one leading country responsible for deforestation. If every Canadian lived as they did now, they would have absorbed 4.7 Earths already. At that last bit, I don't really know what that means. But anyways, so I, so I grabbed onto that tweet and retweeted it after uh, doing a little fact check of my own. And it was just simply going to Natural Resources Canada website. And I found, so right, the first thing that popped up was, says, uh, fact, Canada's deforestation rate is among the lowest in the world. The annual deforestation rate in Canada in 2010 was less than 0.02% of our forests and that rate has been declining for over 25 years. In 1990, 63,100 hectares were lost to deforestation and in 2014 this figure dropped to 34,200 hectares. So of course, yeah, so I I tweeted them back and and said like, come on now, you know. Good for you. So just so our listeners are clear there, we have somebody who's attending this 3% student, yeah, she's a teenager. And she's saying uh, that, that we, we have, have the most rapid rate of deforestation in the world, in the number world. one. Yep. So this, this is, is the information she's getting from this presentation. And, and the reason I, I retweeted it, and it wasn't to be a bully t- towards a student or whatever, but 3% retweeted her tweet. So, right. I mean, it kind of and confirms so what... you had to do was Google yeah. and, and see that we're one of the lowest in the world. So yeah. You know, there's got to be, and I don't know much about our deforestation rate, but clearly those are some uh, pretty big differences. We're going from being the worst well, our to being one of the best. Yeah, yeah so says the lowest right in the world. Here? Yeah, so that's, that's remarkable that 
a group would, would actually present to kids with that message. And well, and it's also worth noting that Steve Lee, who who is the presenter, was uh, trained by personally trained by Al Gore too. Just so, oh, wow. which is interesting. Interesting ties. I didn't know that. Well. It's, it's funny because, you know, I've, I've had a look at the PowerPoint presentation and uh, one of the stats that, that I thought was interesting was, and, and we're just hearing a lot more about this uh, whole myth that the Canadian government is heavily subsidizing the Canadian oil and gas industry. And so I noticed that one of the bullets in their, their uh, presentation, this is 3% presentation, was that says here, the IMF has estimated that Canada's current subsidies to fossil fuels amount to $46 billion per year. Uh, and they say that that's over 10%, uh, that is over 10% of the federal budget expenditure, 3.3 times higher than our national defense budget. And so this was cited, so this was cited and had a, had a footnote. So I went to the back of the thing and I took the hyperlink that they provided, put it in, got the uh, study that they were citing to get this uh, $46 billion per year subsidy to fossil fuels, mm-hmm. and opened it up. Very complicated reading, I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't get to I mean, there's lots of formulas and stuff for how they were coming up with, uh, with these numbers, but what I wanted to see was the line that said Canada was contributing a $46 billion subsidy to the fossil fuel industry. And so went through it, you know, using keyword searches and, and looking for Canada, looking for 46 billion, looking for fossil fuel subsidy, etc. Um, and I did not find, I mean, Canada was in there twice, uh, once in a list of uh, advanced economies. And then the word Canada came up in one of their footnotes because one of these uh, studies that they cited was done in Winnipeg. Other than that, I didn't see Canada at all within the no. study. And I didn't see $46 billion towards uh, the Canadian fossil fuel industry at all. So, you know, I, I don't know where they're, yeah, yeah. I don't know where they're, uh, how they can claim that, that that's the truth, especially when we know that, you know, there are things like capital cost allowance that, that happens uh, for fossil fuel companies, but it happens for every industry in, in the country. And then yeah. there are things like, uh, I guess, corporate tax, uh, cuts and, and things of that nature, but that's, that's not, you're not handing tax your dollars over anywhere. No. So. no. And they're all saying that, the uh, subsidy thing, like Gordon Laxer, that was part of his presentation as well. It was. Yeah. 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 Well, and Zipporah Berman, you hear them say that, and on, you see it on social media. And, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that uh, CAP is doing a lot of work this year to uh, dispel some of the myths around that. I think it's important because, you know, it's something that if you don't, all of these claims. I think maybe they're relying on the fact that people aren't going to go and research what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you say, we need to start encouraging people to do that and calling them out because it doesn't take long. I mean, you know, just go to one of their footnotes and go to one of the studies that they're they're citing and, and have a look. And, I mean, chances are pretty good you're not going to find an answer even there. So, yeah, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, no, well, I just think that um, it's important to call them out like I did on Twitter and that kind of thing. But like you just said, if we don't start talking to these people face-to-face, questioning them, letting them know um, how they impact families, and, you know, these are our fellow Canadians. 
And I think it would be, it's effective if you go and you look them in the eye and you let them know that, you know, this is what this has done to me or my friends or my neighbors. And uh, I think that even the people that support them and attend their protests are, you know, going to have some level of empathy and compassion. And maybe, maybe we can bring some balance to the conversation at some point. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I agree. So I've got a question here for you. Um, you know, it, doesn't, it seems like it doesn't take long before the presentations our opponents give kind of move away from what they, I guess, initially present their argument to be, and that's, again, climate change and, and uh, GHG emissions. Uh, but we're seeing more and more these groups moving towards subjects like social inequality, uh, hunger, uh, poor global health, um, and, and they're, they're kind of trying to pin fossil fuels on, on these circumstances, you know, and, and kind of try to create this straw man argument there. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think their agenda is with that? Uh, that's a good question to ask. Um, we can guess any number of theories. I think one of their, I personally think that one of their main driving forces is, is political. They are building their lists, um, you know, collecting their data for elections, where they will use them to sway and get out the vote. Like the 3% project, for instance, how many students out of 1 million will be voting in the next election and the one after that? And I'll also note that, you know, kind of like you said, that their agenda is odd, uh, given countries with access to affordable energy have much less instances of the issues they're trying to address. The, re the reality is the stuff they are proposing is having an opposite effect to what they say their stated goals are. For example, with the Green New Deal, they're using bud words like um, fair and equitable. But instead of social equity, they end up putting more people out of work and into financial hardship, which causes all kinds of problems from broken families, crime, drug use, homelessness, kids going to school without food and lunches um, and to a smaller tax base that pays for our social services and I mean most people I, I would hope know that the answer to these issues is that we should be doing tapping into the Canadian resource expertise and teaching that, the, that to the world uh, if, you know if we did that we'd make fast environmental and social gains across the globe yeah I agree with you there I think that it's odd you know some of the messaging that we're hearing from uh, political parties in mm -hmm. this country in, in particular um, you know there's a real easy story to tell about Canadian oil and gas and that is you know if we you just look at a stat like flaring mm -hmm. and when, when you if, if you did apply Canada's flaring standards to industry around the world you're, you're reducing GHGs right off the top by 23%. Yep. So that's a realistic, meaningful decrease right away. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we know the impacts natural gas have. And, and you, know, you see on the news in, in India these air quality Beijing. warnings, yep. and people are, you know, and it comes from smog, it comes from lots of different things, obviously, but we know that they, they generate electricity with coal in mm -hmm. these countries. I mean, get Canadian LNG to these countries, and you're, you're making huge decreases in GHG emissions. Uh, carbon emissions right away like and it's easy and it's, yeah. it's realistic and achievable that's the thing like it's just it seems like a no-brainer but we have paid activists that <laughs>
<laughs> well, yes, it's, it's pretty clear we have our work cut out for us and will for some time to come. So to wrap it up, um, before we let you go, what advice can you give to our listeners who want to become more active in defending our industry? We get this question a lot. Sometimes it's challenging to answer. Uh, but you guys have done it uh, mm-hmm. on your own dime, with your own time. Uh, what can you sort of, what advice can you give? Um, well, I guess you are your own biggest advocate. Don't wait around for someone else to come and save the day. Uh, as Canadians, we have all become too comfortable and reliant on politicians. We wait for elections to come around, hope our preferred party gets in, and believe that if that happens, all of our problems will be solved. And, you know, that does help. Uh, It isn't the end-all be-all, though, because governments are always temporary, and we have to remember that governments are influenced by populism from both sides of the spectrum. So we always, this is a long-term thing, we always have to be talking to ourselves, regardless of who's elected, talking for ourselves, regardless of who's in office. As oil and gas workers, we've also been reliant on industry, but industry is influenced by risk. So there's only so much they can do to help the situation. Their their communications have been limited to fact-fighting, which is fine. Uh, Their communications to date have been designed as a means for correcting misinformation put out by activists or as a means to try and add logic to an emotional public dialogue. That's an approach that has been used for three decades if we look all the way back to other resource campaigns like forestry um, and and it just can't compete with activists emotion laden campaigns so I guess number one if you have kids um, and I recently did this email or phone their teachers and tell them that if you want to know that, that you want to know about any third-party presentations being made prior to your children taking part in them if our educators aren't fact-checking them, then as parents, we need to. And you guys have done that? Yeah. yeah. And they are annoyed because it's an extra step in, you know, in their planning. But you know what? That's what they get paid for. So, and, I mean, it's important. Right now, it's, it's really important. It I is. I agree with you. Yeah, especially when, you know, we just talked about it. Some of the messaging that they're getting is yeah. just wrong. Like, it's a flat-out lie. Yeah. It's, you know... Tough to say it that way, but I don't know what else you can say. No. No. And secondly, um, make sure that when you see or hear misinformation in any form of media, phone or write them and ask them to correct it. They have a big audience and they're influential. So that's radio, if you see it in print, if you hear it on the evening news while you're eating dinner. Um, they may not respond, but hey, if they do, that's a win. So, uh, I guess... Three, start following the Engos and attend their events, like we've talked about. Ask them the hard questions. Uh, they are not used to being held accountable, and they have supporters who, who are on the fence with their campaigns and their messages that you might connect with. Um, they also need to understand the human cost and toll, like we've said, that they have taken on Canadian lives. They, if they're having a climate strike, protest or rally, go. It doesn't have to be confrontational, and if you take a sign, it doesn't need to be derogatory. Uh, It should have messaging that will have positive impact and connect emotionally with other Canadians that might see it in the news, or even that are standing there. This also lets the paid organizers know that we're paying attention and speaking up. Um, 
And that's important as well because they went for so long without any, any opposition. Um, throw them off. Uh, so if you're in Calgary this Friday, I think Edmonton as well, Extinction Rebellion is hosting a climate strike at City Hall. And I say get there. Well, now you're challenging me to get this podcast uh, ready for Friday. <laughs> I am, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, another thing you can do is sign every petition and send every form email that come to, comes at you on the issues that you support. Um, it's monotonous and it seems repetitive, but the more names that hit the desks of politicians daily, the better. Uh, we also have an incredible network of true grassroots organizations that we are working with on a new campaign called the Canadian New Deal. We are partnering up with uh, Resource Ed for Resource People out of Victoria. Uh, the North Matters in Kitimat, Northwest BC, I guess Northeast as well, Rally Canada from Drayton Valley, and Region 1 Aboriginal Business Association from the Lacklebish area. There is also individuals already on board from Calgary and um, a few across the rest of the country ready to support and help. And it's a realistic and viable alternative to the Green New Deal. It's a campaign that is ambitious, but it's achievable. Um, with, you know, some volunteer time and hopefully some funding. So, you know, many of our voices are better than a few. All of these groups are on social media and have websites, so visit them. You can follow Rally for Resources and the Canadian New Deal on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And also be sure to sign up for our emails at www.canadiannewdeal.ca because we have some really great ideas. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, both for coming in. I think your cover was blown there, Jeff, with that cough. So we <laughs> we have Jeff with us in uh, in quote unquote studio. And I'd also, when I say that, I'd like to thank Predator Drilling for yeah. uh, offering their office space to us to record the podcast today. We're up in Red Deer, and uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you guys so much for all of the work that you've done on behalf of everyone in our industry. You've done a fantastic job. Uh, I just think that people should really recognize what you've, you know, you've taken on um, on your own time and your own dime. And so we thank you um, and we thank you very much for coming in uh, to speak with us today. Thanks. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for joining us this month on the Weldcore Supply CAODC podcast. We'd like to thank our special guest, Nicole Wapple from Rally for Resources for joining us. And also Brittany Russell and the gang at Predator Drilling for providing us with a quiet space to record. I really enjoyed that interview. Uh, it was a lousy day to drive up to Red, De Red Deer, but uh, very worth it. Those two are just fantastic advocates for our industry, as mentioned, uh, doing it, uh, paying for it themselves, doing it on their own time, and just really, really passionate about uh, their friends, their family, and our industry. So thanks to them. If you enjoy the show, and that would be the Wildcore Supply CAODC podcast, and could give us a like or share, we'd appreciate it. Uh, we are now available for download on Spotify, and we should be available on iTunes shortly. Additionally, if you have any questions or comments or would like to suggest a guest, please send us a note to communications at caodc.ca. Thank you very much for joining us again here in uh, uh, November. We will be hitting December extremely fast. It's hard to believe already, but uh, we hope to see you around next month. And until then, have a great day.